0: tell any secrets of the Mao Mau, this oath will kill me. If I am called in the night and refuse to come, this oath will kill me. If I see anyone steal white man's property, I must help him. I must hide what he gives me and say nothing, or this oath will kill me. The whole system in this country, the economic system, is such that
1: uh, jobs are scarce. Automation is limiting jobs. It's it's, it's decreasing jobs. And uh, if autom- as automation eliminates the job opportunities, legislation will not create job opportunities. All it will do is bring about friction and hostility between the two races. You, you see, there will be no uh, progressive revival if black uh, folks
0: are not deeply involved in it. I will obey all orders of the Mau Mau or this oath will kill me. Peace and greetings to the chat, peace and greetings to the audience. This is Pascal Robert, your host of the Mau Mau Hour. Today, I am here running the show and the boards by myself, but I have a special guest who will be coming in after I give a brief monologue, who's going to be talking about a very interesting and very important historical subject that is dear to both of us. And we're going to do a retrospect and talk very honestly and intently about a phenomenon that has transpired a significant amount of Black life, and we're going to be talking about the divine nine Black fraternities and sororities. Before we begin, I'm going to start with a quote by two men, one of them. Is a founder of Alpha Phi Alpha fraternity, and one of them is a very significant man in the history of Omega Psi Phi fraternity. This is the first quote I fear that in another generation, the relationship of the years 1890 to 1920 in the establishment and growth of Alpha and the subsequent Greek letter societies will be lost entirely. When that occurs, our usefulness will be over." That's from Alpha Phi Fraternity founder, Henry Arthur Callis in 1952. The next quote, "'The large majority of Negroes who have put on the finishing touches of our best colleges are all but worthless in the development of their people." That is Carter G. Woodson, a member of Omega Psi Phi Fraternity, Harvard-trained historian and creator of Black History Month. The point of today's Mau Mau Hour is to interrogate the social, historical, and, and political, as well as class utility of the Black fraternity and sorority movement that starts on the collegiate campus at Cornell University in 1906 and spreads throughout the country until we have what is called today the Divine Nine. The purpose of this interrogation is to ask, do these organizations provide a service that is useful to the empowerment of the Black masses? Or are they an organization filled with educated elites who are a comprador petite bourgeoisie, who help facilitate the utility of the ruling class and capital And instead of actually transforming the status quo, become enablers of the status quo. There are certain facts that must be reckoned with. Since the civil rights movement, the wealth gap among Black people, as much as we talk about the wealth gap, has gotten worse than it was prior to the civil rights movement prior to the civil rights movement the wealth gap amongst black amongst black was much less today the top 10 percent of black families own 75 percent of black wealth as a matter of fact not only that between the 1970s and today the the top 10 percent the top five to ten percent of blacks saw a doubling of the economic condition while the bottom 85% of Blacks saw their income and wealth stay completely flat and stay the same. The question becomes, if the economic position and condition of Black America in the majority, if we assume is being led by this quote-unquote Talented tenth or divine nine, as they claim to be so crucial. Why have phenomena like mass incarceration, deindustrialization, massive gentrification, things like eugenics, chart public school gutting charter school movements, totally neoliberal capitalist political actors, the development of the corporate-funded black political class, who are all populated by members of these organizations? if this is the quote unquote leadership that comes out of these entities, then the question becomes whose interests are they actually serving? To engage with that conversation with me, I have a good friend of the show, someone who I have profound respect for, who has been here before. And we're gonna take a trip down memory lane on the origins of these organizations and how we got here. And we're gonna talk about things that they've done in the past that many many may not know of. And the person that I wanna to talk to is specialist in not only educate public school education and education of black youth, but a master specialist of the subject of eugenics, Mr. Jeff Kennedy.
1: Welcome, welcome everybody. Uh, thank you for inviting me to the mile Hour. It's a pleasure to be uh, with you again. Um, I'm going to let you take I'm going to let you take the lead on this Pasco but i really would like for you to discuss how did we get here? Uh okay. How the reason why we are here on this particular show on this particular night. Let's well, let's get in a little bit of that. Let's talk well,
0: about it. Let's do it up right now. That's right. Let's make this clear. After the last episode we have Jeff on where we had uh Professor Bridget Robertson on. Jeff and I had been talking about the importance of doing a show on the relationship between black fraternities and sororities in eugenics and we wanted to do one to talk about their role in the eugenics in the early 20th century what sparked off this show are some rather controversial posts that i put on social media as a consequence of evidence that i have had from actual documentation from other competitive fraternities that came after or were founded after my own that basically directly correlated their founding to the sentiments they had to early members of my fraternity, which is Alpha Phi Alpha Fraternity. As I told you that Jeff Kennedy is a member of Omega Psi Phi Fraternity, I'm a member of Alpha Phi Alpha Fraternity. Now, one of the things that those who are not familiar with the Divine Nine, that one of the things about Alpha Phi Alpha Fraternity is that it prides itself as being the first intercollegiate undergraduate black fraternity founded for black men was founded at cornell university our second chapter which is our beta chapter was founded in 1907 at howard university what many people do not know is that there were profound social phenomenon in terms of status competition aspects of colorism aspects of social hierarchy and division in terms of arrogance and a sense of elitism that caused friction amongst students on Howard University's campus that basically caused, you can argue, a nuclear eruption that get, what ends up giving birth to what become eight other organizations, four sororities and five other uh, fraternities, or four other fraternities, excuse me. And the argument that I made is that oftentimes, what is accused to be stereotypes and what caused this friction or division is about things like the alphas were engaging in the LeBron paper bag test or the alphas were elitist in terms of family lineage, so on and so forth. And What I had known as an Alpha is that the Alphas were definitely arrogant and elitist to the point, and I told Jeff this, we had one of our old general presidents of Alpha Phi Alpha who literally said, and this is a quote that was said at a convention, Alpha Phi Alpha has gotten so hot that if Jesus Christ himself were alive today, he could not become a member of this organization. And he didn't say that with pride. He said that with condemnation. My only argument was that not that the Alphas were acting in a rather clannish kind of arrogant elitist way but that the charge of particularly colorism and family lineage was unfounded based on the history that i had studied and that debate between jeff and i and jeff did something where he he took it a little further
1: okay can, may, may i jump may i jump in here right now or are you frozen
0: can everyone hear me are you frozen Okay, where are we? Okay,
1: all right. Can I jump in here? Yes. And and, and say that another part of the another part of the story, maybe not as eloquent or as long as uh, Pascal just did. So Pascal basically got fired up uh, in his discussion as he does from time to time, and he posts on Facebook a post that basically talked about my fraternity. And what he wrote specifically, and I, I'm, I'm, I'm going to quote him, look at the nonsense pretext this founder of Omega Psi Phi gives for starting their fraternity. He's a light-skinned, damn, damn near all the beta chapter of Alpha Phi Alpha between 1909 and 1913. And we already know the economic standing and family status was not a barrier to membership in Alpha, Alpha Phi Alpha at Howard. Rejection is hell of a motivator. And right. I kindly asked uh Pascal to uh rescind and take down that post. And when he didn't, I just shared it with my frat brothers. Yeah, in five And, minutes. In five and minutes. within and within a few minutes, they were scouring Pascal's Facebook page and everything they could find on Pascal Robert to get the record straight. Now, why this is important, <clears throat> why this is important is um the 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 historical record is just inaccurate. And I think Pascal for having this show to somewhat correct that.
0: Well, um, let me let me let me make let me make right. a point because I have I have well, some see, you let you gonna Let me finish. finish. Let me, let me, let me finish.
1: Sorry. Okay, let me finish. So one of the things that we later found out, and I'm not and I'm not speaking as um uh, uh an official uh, spokesman for Omegaus so I found speaking as an individual member so anybody who's watching this so what we later found out was by doing a little more research that one uh one of our founders Bishop Ecker Amos love wasn't rejected by Alpha Phi Alpha he was actually tapped in and once another founder of Alpha Phi Alpha because the Alpha at beta chapter at that particular time, only accepted thirty-five members, and I don't I don't even know why they had a cap of thirty-five members. But they were looking for forty-five members. I mean, they 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 were looking for fourteen more members. And uh, what Pascal and me also discovered that they had something called Tap Day.
0: I have at, the documentation right here at,
1: at, at, at Beta chapter at Howard University, and so at Tap Day. Alpha made, and they started the first one in 1909, correct, Pascal?
0: 1908, that was the first one.
1: 1908. And what they would do is they would uh, have all the prospective men who were uh, going out for Alpha Phi Alpha, which was prestigious at that particular time at Howard University, it was the only black fraternity. They would have the marching band. They would have all the women on campus. And it was this huge event. And they would go and they were trying to find the individuals who they had selected to be these in these 14 slots and they would tap them on their shoulder. And these people um, at that point would come out and try to pledge Alpha Phi Alpha what occurred somewhere in between. I don't know if it was 1909, 1910. Oh, and, but it was one of those years. Several members of several founders of Omega, who ended up being the members of Omega, uh, were tapped, and one of their best friends wasn't. And they believed, they believed, and I I think it was Oscar Cooper. I think it wasn't Coleman, I think it was Cooper, because Cooper came from a, uh, he didn't have the same background that uh, Coleman and Love had and but he did go to the M Street Academy here in Washington DC but he was from a poor background and because he wasn't chosen we believe that you know the other two members of uh, who were end up founders of Omega said basically um that they believed the alpha was elitist it was class conscious color conscious and a lot more and, and, we, and he, he talked about it uh back it kept a historical record back then. And um, and why that is important is, because we have to remember in the context of why they even created for Black fraternities and sororities, this was the time of scientific racism. We had just come out of slavery. And I don't want to get, I'm about to get into Plessy versus Ferguson. Plessy versus Ferguson, separate but unequal, was just passed in 1896. So this is a few years, just a few years after Plessy, not even ten years, well, about ten years after Plessy versus Ferguson, where they said separate but and equal was 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 the law. So at Cornell, and I don't want to get into telling the history of Alpha Phi Alpha by by any means, but a number of the black students the year before uh, Alpha was created had failed out of school. They That's had true. a number of blacks and they knew that they collectively needed to get together as students, as black students to be able to survive. Um, what was what was happening in the world around scientific racism. And this was the issue back then. So it wasn't so much that everything was elitist at that particular time. At first the black fraternities were for survival. They were trying to wipe uh, people of color off of the face of the earth. Not only people of color, but Jews, Southern Europeans, Italians. And they were also trying to decide at that particular time what white was. There was two different, there was, excuse me, 32 different variations of white. And they were trying to decide what is this thing called white? And then you had another pressing problem. You had this class of what they called mulattoes, People who were basically uh, 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 mixed with blacks and whites—I mean, who were basically black and white—and they were trying to figure out, okay, who 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 among them is 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 black? How much black do they have in them? And who are these people? Because a lot of them they couldn't determine who the whites were. That's when they came up with the one-drop rule. They came up the night going a little later. They came up with the 1924 Immigration Act. In Virginia, they came up with the Racial Identity Act the same day where they were trying to identify who were these, who, who, who are the blacks, who are the whites, who are the Jews, who are the Italians, and how we treat all those people. So now the, the degress back to uh Bishop uh Bishop Love. Well, at the time they thought that we they needed a fraternity that focused in on friendship. That's why. For Omega, our main uh our main uh slogan or our main motto is friendship is essential to the soul. And that's how Omega came about. Um, because they they gotcha. simply did they simply believe that Alpha wasn't showing that particular quality and they wanted to create a fraternity. And they wanted to create a fraternity uh based on that in their own fraternity and they didn't have actual permission for Howard for three more years. And it was the Alpha Kelly Miller who was also very much into eugenics who was an administrator at Alpha. He was the Dean of Students. And he actively brought he actively blocked the men of Omega from starting their fraternity for years until Thurkill until Thurkill left the university and they brought in a new president. And you have to remember at these universities, they did not want blacks to organize. Any organization was thought to be a a, a, a a subversive group to white supremacy or a threat to white supremacy. So they had their hands all within how black people were going to be educated, especially at Howard University, and even to this day, Howard University has a special appropriation primarily for the United States government can sort of dictate what happens at Howard University, which is in Washington, D.C. Go ahead, Pascal. Now you can. what
0: I wanted to say to your larger point, because I want to give a shout out to a very good friend of mine who was a member of Omega Psi Phi, who uh, I actually went to when I was in law school was a good friend of mine from Gamma chapter of Omega Sci-Fi, who clarified on this a lot, because he is the one who actually had confirmed ta- Tap Day, and he was like, no, they are, mem- they are brothers of Omega Sci-Fi who are aware of this history. I said, really? He said, yeah, they are. And what he had told me also is that, to, to your point, is that the two founders of Omega Sci-Fi who were tapped, they rejected being accepted by Alpha Phi Alpha because their friend, their th- what they just call themselves the Three Musketeers, was not tapped. So the and he explains the the, the, the motto of friendship is a, is a, is essential a to the soul comes from the fact that these men sacrificed membership in what was considered at that time the most the only and most prestigious prestigious fraternity in the country or on on campus to be in solidarity with their friend who they felt was unjustly related unjustly rejected excuse me and I, when I said that I said that makes a lot that that explains why friendship becomes the important motivating factor b- behind the, d- the growth of that brother. What is also interesting though, to that verse, which many people do not know, which I actually had document not to you know, to, you know, to get, a- get away from the Omega's is that two of the founders of Kappa Alpha Psi were freshmen in 1909 with the founders of Omega Psi Phi witnessed tap day in the fall of 1909 and this is in an old capital alpha psi history book which i have the documentation and then transferred to indiana and because they witnessed such arrogant treatment by the alphas had to debate amongst themselves if they were going to start another chapter of alpha alpha or start their own fraternity and because they were so unsatisfied with what they witnessed in their freshman year at howard they decided decided to start the organization called Cap Alpha Nu, which eventually became Cap Alpha Psi. So this not only tap day, but the sense of exclusivity that the Alphas were emanating at Howard helps create a chain reaction that expands this phenomenon basically throughout the country. Now, I don't say this as a point of pride or, or honor or integrity. My position is that all of these organizations whether they be the Boole, Alpha, Omega, Sigma, Kappa, Iota, AKA, Doug, I don't care, are all compradors and work at the behest of the ruling class. I have publicly spoken against them all and put in my own organization, and, and Jeff can attest to this, even within the sanctity of my own organization's meetings and, and thoroughfares to let them know what my opinions are of them in terms of their role as being collaborators with the ruling class. So I didn't, one thing I put up a post is that I didn't want the men of America sci-fi to feel that I was selectively antagonizing them because I have been antagonizing my own organization for years. And I put up a video of a debate that I had with brothers in my chapter about the way in which the politics that our organization has supported has helped facilitate some of the worst conditions for black people in the post civil rights era. So to that point
1: and, and, and let me say to pascal's defense um uh he is an equal opportunity abuser when it comes to all the divine nine especially the boulet uh, a lot of people don't realize that actually alpha wasn't the first fraternity it was the boulet the boulet was um, not a
0: collegiate fraternity It was, but a- it wasn't
1: a, right it wasn't collegiate fraternity and this is and this is an important now for where we find ourselves collectively and where they found uh their selves in different um in different eras. Um you we can't deny, and I'm and I'm not, you know, I, I take a different approach when it comes to criticizing the divine nine. I think there is room for criticism. Even Martin Luther King uh was extremely critical of fraternities, even his own. Uh, and he actually just made this uh, one little statement, uh, where he actually made a longer statement, but I'm gonna read this, this short part. He said the danger, he said, um, the, the danger is that the black Greeks organization can become forces of classism and exclusism where somehow you get a degree of satisfaction because you are in something exclusive. Now, Martin Luther King had a much more uh, negative critique of fraternities and sororities, but I'm, I'm not, I'm not going to go there in this, this bit of time. That's, a, that's actually a whole show and I think you would agree, Pascal, why he did that. But when you had such men as Ralph Bunch, uh, who was the alpha, you had Paul Robeson, who was the alpha, you had Ernest Everett Just, who was the, uh, an Omega, you had Carter G. Woodson, who was Omega. Um, these men in, who weren't perfect, we're trying to strive to basically build, um, to build the black community in America. And that, that building project uh, needs to be critiqued because in some ways it was building, and then other ways they were shutting other blacks out. And it's and, and there is no and, ifs, buts so or's about that historical record. And that, you know, that is something that should be debated among all the divine nine, not just with one Omega, one member of Alpha and another member of Omega. So that's why I'm not going to get into that particular conversation. But we're we're, you know, we're imperfect organizations. We're we're, we're definitely imperfect organizations and uh of imperfect people, but I've seen uh imperfect people do some very great work and some very Hard work, and I, and I, and for me and my fraternity, um, we have our issues. You know, um, we're not perfect, but for the blood, sweat, and tears that uh, Omega has poured into the black community, I'm very proud of, of many of the efforts since the founding of this particular fraternity.
0: Oh, now you're going to do a commercial for the cues on the, on my show, man? Really?
1: Well, I, that's why I, that's why I have them on the shirt, brother. I'm, I'm,
0: oh, you I'm, got I'm, Omega Sapphire Path for that. I'm, actually, I'm proud of
1: I'm proud of I'm proud of the brother.
0: Well listen, man, and, I've said and, it, a million it, times. And, and there's
1: I, many ways I'm not proud of the brother.
0: So I listen, I've made I've made the statement a million times. I have no shame in my membership. Pledging Alpha Alpha was one of the most important trans transitional experiences of my life. I want to give you an anecdote that I told Jason. When I was 18 years old, freshly crossed off the sands in the neophyte. In December of 1987, after I had just crossed I played the spring of 87, I went to a Founder's Day function at a church. They had a Founder's Day function at an Episcopal Church. This old man, this guy could have been my grand grandfather, comes up to me. He said, hey, young man, what's your name? I said, oh, Brother Pascal Robert, spring 87, Zysai, Hops University. He said, oh, man, my name is F.D. Patterson, Alpha for new chapter 19, like 20-something or whatever, like early on. So I sit down, I say, like, okay, he grips me up like he's like, "Bro, we're like brothers. I say, okay, I sit down. And then the service goes on, and then the, the orator gets up. He said, We like to thank a very important brother we have here, Brother F.D. Patterson, founder of the United Negro College Fund. That was the same old man that I had met. He ended up being the third president of Tuskegee University. And that was one of the most memorable for 18 year old kid who grows up in Queens, New York, of Caribbean background, to be instantaneously connected to over a century of Black history was a transformative experience of my youth. I couldn't do the kind of work that I do right now criticizing these institutions if I did not have the inside knowledge and information that I obtained being raised by them as a young teenager up into my adulthood. What happens is that because I developed a much more sharp understanding of the class political project that they engage in, even though they do create a cadre of young black men and women with very important skills the class project in my humble analysis is one that is more detrimental to the political reality of the majority of black people because it works in the advancement of the political status quo and what i have grown to develop an understanding that is not necessarily exclusively a post a post civil rights phenomenon, but that is a phenomenon that goes back to the early 20th century. And one of the ways that, I, that that has been most clear to me is in the role of many of these early members of these organizations in their utility of eugenics to use racial uplift as a class delineator amongst Black people and organizations that were profoundly influenced by alpha men like the national urban league which had always been an institutional mechanism of capitalism in the state to socially control poor and working class black people from the beginning all you have to do is read Toray reed's book not arms but opportunity he has quotes in there from one of the um, our most beloved founders of our fraternity that will make brothers shiver when you understand the sense of the way in which racial uplift was used to antagonize poor and working class black people. And it is in this further reading that I came to the conclusion that I don't have contempt or I mean, I love the brothers I pledge with the brothers who pledge me. I love my chapter. I love the brothers who I know, but in terms of the political utility of these organizations and what they actually produce as a political and social phenomenon, they are analogous to what Franz Fanon called the neo-colonial, the neo-colonial petite bourgeoisie, which is, in other words, the, the comprador that exists in the third world country that works at the behest of the imperialist power, that manages the affair of the proletariat to the benefit of the imperialist power. Well, I-
1: let, me, let, me, let me let me respond to that by uh, stating this. Um one of the things that we can't possibly do when we talk is in uh, absolutes. So we don't say that the organization was absolutely 100% uh, a particular way where you had many members or you may have had some members that absolutely Pascal just, decide, just described in all of the fraternities and sororities. You had another group who who um, were trying to empower uh, 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 the poor, work with the poor, work with other individuals in the Black community, trying to raise their families, trying to do the right thing. But as a class project and looking at uh, uplift as we've come to understand it in terms of eugenics, and we just did a show with Bridget Robinson uh, where she uh, beautifully went through what racial uplift meant back then. and in order to uplift somebody, you have to decide that somebody is underneath you. And what we had in many of the urban areas, and in some southern areas, not many, uh, more in the urban areas, were people who had gotten comfortable with white society. And, and many of them were <laughs> the, the sons and daughters of the uh, uh, patriots, uh, presidents. Of individuals uh, of, of notability from the slave, I mean, from the slave owner class, and they were a lot of the children. And at that particular time, when they started creating the fraternities, they had about we they had about I think it was about fifty thousand uh, African Americans or blacks as they Negroes as they were called in the country who were doing extremely well, and and and, and especially in Washington D.C. You had this class of, of black who was doing, I mean, when Negroes and color, as they would call it that particular time, who were doing extremely well. And then you had this great migration of people who were being run out of the South because somebody named uh, uh, Booker T. Washington had basically wanted to give up, the, had not basically wanted to, but gave up uh, the, the, the political rights Of Africa, I mean, of the colored, so that they could, uh, so that they could live in the South amongst, you know, uh, 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 whites. And when he came up with the Atlanta Compromise, I mean, this set blacks back. I mean, I, I can't say probably back to slavery, and that is why he was welcomed by so many organizations and just just lifted up. I mean, he made one speech. And next thing you know, he's up at Harvard receiving an award. And even when he got there, Du Bois was like, "Well, who is this guy? I mean, he made one speech, 1895, Atlanta Compromise, and now all of a sudden, you know, he's lifted up as the greatest black leader that there is because his speech said that blacks would basically stay in their place, not try to politically organize, and um, and they were going to use them." to educate other Blacks to do the same. And and that fit right in with with the North and the South. And that's what a lot of people don't realize. It was not only the South, but the North. They wanted Blacks to stay in their place. They weren't comfortable with them receiving some of the same uh, accommodations, some of the same housing, some of the same jobs. They weren't comfortable with looking at Blacks or the colored, as they would call it that particular time as equal beings, as equal human beings. So that goes back to why doing scientific racism and the the period of the eugenics movement that we had to organize, we we had to gather ourselves because they were saying that we were not still human and that now it was hereditary, that it was in our blood. So- that is why i stay so passionate about the fact that we are still using elements of eugenics to this day especially in washington dc it is completely insane but and these are mostly black folks but go ahead pasco go ahead
0: one of the things that i wanted to, to on the on on the point of booker t washington is that the reason why the white capitalist ruling class dispatched booker t washington was to neutralize the colored farmers alliance and the populist movement. Because during the populist movement, black poor sharecroppers and white sharecroppers were creating a political fusion that was challenging Southern bourbon capitalism that was actually going to threaten the effectiveness of the ruling class in the South to maintain the subjugation of both races. And they elevated Booker T. Washington to to give them a green light to the concessions in his speech that were implemented in the Supreme Court case that came forth a year later, which was Plessy versus Ferguson, that dis- disenfranchised, disenfranchised not only large number of blacks, but also large numbers of, of poor whites. So Booker T. Washington was elevated to intentionally neutralize the populist movement, probably one of the last times in American history, barring doing the socialist communist movements of the 20s and 30s, where in the 19th century, American capitalism was truly, truly challenged. And to point you to the point of Du Bois, which is very important because we want to get to him. How does Du Bois relate to the birth of these fraternities and support sororities? This is very important.
1: Well, well,
0: so, and everyone, that, everyone, that, everyone, that, you want to answer that? You want? Yeah, I want to answer that. In 1903, <laughs> as a reaction to the popularity and the funding of Booker T. Washington and the crisis that black people are facing lynchings all over the country or just the horrendous treatment booker t washington wb the boys writes two two books one essay and one book one is the souls of black folk and the other is the talented tenth he does not get the idea of the talented tenth from himself but thanks to Jeff for me he got it from as a matter of fact a man who i believe was a former president of morehouse college who who, who Vocalized the concept of a talented tenth leading the race, and but even and then let me let me jump in
1: right here on that particular point. And it was even thought that uh Morehouse got the got the idea of a talented tenth for black folks from the eleven percent of blacks who were free who were already free during slavery. I mean, and a lot of people don't realize it was a eleven about eleven percent of the uh of the black population in the South were free. And they thought that these individuals were going to lead others out of slavery, showing them basically how to do the American project of being a being a person of color. So I'm, I'm going to stop right there. But I wanted to interject that this notion of a talented tenth that that people ascribe to
0: the uh, boys didn't necessarily come from the boys. That's go a great ahead. point. But the point I want to say also is that. Why I even have a problem with the and 10th model is that working class Black, just like the Colored Farmers Alliance, just like Black union workers, just like Black people who are working people always had their own political and social movements, that oftentimes these elites, like Booker T. Washington, like Anna Julia Cooper, who was antagonistic to unions, work to subterfuge at the behest of the ruling class. So even early on, before we get to the 20th century, there was a correlation between college-educated elites within this quote-unquote talented tents neutralizing radical political activity that challenges capitalism of poor and working-class Black people working at the behest of the capitalist ruling class. And that's something that goes back to the 19th century. So the point that I wanted to, to, to express is that when the boys writes The Souls of Black Folk and uh, the, the Talented Tenth essay, it's literally like a shot heard around the world for college-educated uh, Black Americans. The book challenges Booker T. Washington and the essay of Booker T. Washington and others. It talks about the way Black people are treated. It talks about the spirituality of Black people, the contribution of Black people. The Talented Tenth essay gives a kind of call to arms so this book in 1903 souls of black folk talented teeth are written 1904 the boule is founded 1906 alpha phi alpha is founded 1908 Alpha Kappa Alpha is founded 1911. Kappa Alpha Psi is founded in January 1911. Omega Psi Phi is founded in November. Phi Beta Sigma is founded in 1914. Zeta Phi Beta is founded at Howard in 1920. Sigma Gamma Rho is founded at Indiana at Butler College in 1922. And then eventually Iota Phi Theta is founded in 1963. All of these organizations were reacting to that clear that call to war. That Du Bois put out in the Souls of Black Folk in the Talented Tenth. What actually becomes fascinating to me is that at that period, Du Bois is still very much an elitist. Even though he is trying to call the college agent Kenny Black to lead the race, Du Bois is within he's still supporting within five years, massive eugenics. He's using well. Some, some people don't want would not call him a eugenicist, but he believes that eugenics can be used to purify the race and create and use as a means of racial uplift. And well, let, me, many- let,
1: let, 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 let me jump in here. Let me jump in here on this point on Du Bois um, and eugenics. Uh, du Bois was, as we all know, educated at Harvard, and at that particular time, there. This is where all of those ideas were coming from. Uh, Harvard University. It was the center of uh, eugenics. Um, but as the boys learned in the beginning of the 20th century, especially when they started standardized testing, he made the comment about this testing that put Black folks out of humanity. And he started switching around. And um, he, as, as we have discussed with the uh, Negro Project, um and uh Can you elaborate, Howard, on new york.
0: Pro- elaborate on the negro project
1: uh the negro project was um where they had invited margaret sanger who was with the birth control league to come to new york uh and she the invitation to the invitation to come to harlem was done by uh the urban league which nice was, urban was league. run by the, the first six presidents of the urban league as pascal would tell you were all alpha men this was a, Basically, a project of Alpha, uh, where they had invited the Urban League. I mean, excuse me, they invited the Birth Control League, Margaret Sanger, to Harlem. And the reason why they wanted to invite her was to create birth control, because you had this great migration of blacks moving from the South, and these blacks up in Harlem at this particular time, they wanted to limit these poor black folks from having kids. That's Let's correct. just put it out there exactly where it was they was like no we have a pretty good relationship with you know the whites we got a good pretty good social order going on up in here in new york and and you're coming up by the hundreds of thousands and you're changing you're changing um our social order so that is that is where we got the negro project from and this was supported by uh the the these african americans in uh in New York at that particular time, but what's happened in and we and we got to tell the balanced picture in Chicago when they started finding out what Hitler was doing in Germany around eugenics and eugenics was first given by the British, taught to the Americans and the Americans and the and the Americans and the British built up the German eugenics system, and that's what a lot of people don't realize, and even till this day. It started in, uh, it it grew in America in ways that it couldn't happen in Britain. And so from people from Winston Churchill to Arthur Balfour to uh, uh, Marie Stoops, they were all great eugenicists. Kings who started the the World Bank, he was the director of the British Eugenics Society for years. So you can go to Patrice Webb, who was the co-founder of the London School of Economics. And you you'll see that all of these British uh, great thought to be great uh, scholars and friends of the, and fellows of the Royal Society were uh, eugenicists. You know, I, I, I did a conference, <laughs> and I was actually recognized by the uh, by the uh, British. I mean, excuse me, the Eugenics Education Society in 1907, who's now is the Dalphi Genetics Forum uh, last October. And um, we, we, we did a conference with them, and it was amazing how they had switched around and now they were against eugenics. So these were people who actually voluntarily, voluntarily joined what was the Galton Society, and some who joined it when it was the original Eugenics Education Society, and for years have been perpetuating the fact that they believe that Black folks, Italians, Uh, Jews were biologically inferior. And these thoughts are still with us, very much so in in American society. So when it goes back to, so to to get back to Du Bois, Du Bois refuted the talent that 10th in the 1940s. When Hitler showed in his purest form what eugenics was, The black folks in Chicago, if you go back and read those Chicago Defenders, I think uh, uh, Dr. Uh, Bridget, um, Dr. Robinson did an excellent job. We got to have her on another show, you know, talking a little longer about this. If you go back and look at the Chicago Defender and you'll see black saying, wait a minute, we have to fight what's going on in Germany. It was black folks. White Americans were supporting Hitler. And that is something that you white Americans did not want Jews in this country. And if you go back and look at the historical record, even American Jews didn't want uh, Jews to come over to the United States. And, 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 and see, that is the, the story that actually needs to be told. And it was only when Hitler showed the vile and true nature of what eugenics could be the, the world switch around on the eugenics movement, and the United States by no means stopped eugenics after World War II. What they did was, after World War II, they used it as a weapon against Black folks to the point where they started, where they sterilized about sixty to seventy thousand Black, I mean, uh, I, I mean, uh, uh, people in this country, and to this day, we only have three states. That have given compensation. That's Virginia, North Carolina, and uh, California. And California's program uh, will run out at the end of in December of 2023. And you know, and 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 the last thing I'm going to say on, on this particular piece is that in 2020, we just excuse me, in 2022, uh, we had hearings on Capitol Hill because the ICE facilities in uh, Georgia and in Texas. We're still forced sterilizing people. So uh, if you if you Google right now, you'll find out that in the last five days that uh, Utah uh, still has people in 2023 who is who still haven't been compensated for being forced sterilized, and we still have 23 states and the District of Columbia who have never apologized for forced sterilization. And using eugenics in law, in healthcare, in education, in their criminal justice policies. So it's a huge problem.
0: Well, I want to say that that's definitely, and yes, eugenics was something, by the way, there's a cross fertilization of all fraternity members and sorority members that participated, not just the boys. You had Kelly Miller was a big part, you know, people were founded of, you know. Ernest Just did research in, in eugenics as well. We had Charles Johnson who was a big alpha. Oh, hold on, hold on, hold on.
1: Ernest Just, he, and Ernest Just was the uh, preeminent scientist, probably the preeminent scientist of his time. Hitler hated Just. The, the Nazis hated Just because Just was basically the father of epigenetics. And Just was saying that these principles, the way that you wanted to, the way they wanted to teach eugenics, and um, and Montague Cobb was probably a little bit different. Montague Cobb was more of a eugenics purist, like uh, the Sigma founder. What was his name? Uh, Turner, um, uh, one of the Sigma founders, who was who uh, Wyatt. What was it? Wyatt Turner, or uh, who was one of the main mainline eugenics who taught eugenics basically like the white supremacists did. So what Just was trying to do what just was saying that some of these principles, um, we can show and, and use to basically uplift our community, not so much teach eugenics from the standpoint of what uh, the white races wanted to do at that particular time who wanted to wipe out the poor, all poor. They didn't care what race they were. They I wanted really to wipe agree. out and, the white and, poor. They wanted to wipe out the Jews. They wanted to wipe out the
0: Italians. They wanted to wipe out the I, Southern Europeans. I totally agree with you, and I believe that the boys believed the same thing, that we could use this type of eugenics to quote-unquote uplift the race. I don't give them any grace for that. I'm sorry, because black women at the same time, and I'm not saying they engaged in this, at the same time, and this is well before Hitler rises, black women, poor black women are being sterilized by black doctors throughout the country. So well, no 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 no
1: the sterilization of blacks didn't occur until let me be very clear on that the sterilization
0: of blacks didn't occur to the 50s they, no, listen,
1: the, 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 that people,
0: it started happening because you read not only doctor you i mean you read bridges research as well yeah. as chantelle it started happening before the 50s
1: no not not, not it, it didn't start not, happening not in, any, not, not in
0: any not in
1: many mass numbers because that's in true get, not in many mass numbers yes. not in order to get sterilized you had to be receiving public funds and back then, blacks were not uh, collect, not getting uh, welfare or any kind of, uh, in, not until Board the board versus, board versus uh, Brown versus Board of Education were blacks receiving any kind of major welfare funding from the state. And that was one of the uh, conditions of receiving that funding was that if you were going to get welfare funding, you had to get sterilized. You were, they were not going to allow you to have children while you were receiving uh, welfare. And so these were basically white folks outside of Germany. The Afro Germans were sterilized. By, I think it was maybe about two hundred, maybe about two hundred thousand of them. Even before they even got to the Jews, they and, and all the disabled people. And that's what you have to also add in. Germany was sterilizing all of the disabled people, all of the Afro Germans. This was before they even started with the Jews and even if you go back to congo if you go back to leopold what he did in um what he did in in, in congo what we now call congo um and the, the massacre that occurred then if you go back to uh, uh south africa and um is uh, it devil's island um when, when you look at the experiments that were going on then these things all predated what Hitler was doing. So Hitler. all of these ideas have been floating around. But no, blacks weren't mass sterilized.
0: I'm until, not denying that they were not mass. The they were not, yes. they were not sterilized. Matter. I'm not denying they clearly were not sterilizing in the same extent they were in the 1950s. Fannie Lou Hamer was sterilized well before the 1950s. That's a fact. No, Fannie Lou Hamer
1: wasn't sterilized until 1960s. She was a
0: fool. Yeah. When she was in B- 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 a voice,
1: Van Lou Henry wasn't sterilized until the sixties.
0: I, I well, we have to debate. We have to disagree yeah. on that point. Yeah. Yeah. But the larger point I'm going to say is that the phenomenon of black female sterilization was definitely happening before World War II and the rise of Nazi Germany. I will also I will concede to you it was not happening as no. an extent to the extent. And it was after 1950 but based on the scholarship that you and i have both read both of those scholars document that these phenomenons were happening before the rise of nazi germany and they were blacks who are oh no, me,
1: me neither of the neither of the women scholars have suggested by any by any okay. Uh, okay. by okay. any well, us, that this was happening before both of them very clearly state that okay. this happened in let's, the 1950s this is what i do pascal come on baby.
0: okay let's agree to disagree we can, re, we can we can we can address we can both address like, later we, yes yes, yes. another time but i want to move on to a more important subject matter which is the the historical phenomenon that gives these organizations the most claim to legitimacy as leaders of the race if you will which is their role in the civil rights movement i could definitely say this as an alpha this is something that gives alpha men a particular sense of quote unquote belief that it is their proper role because of dr king thurgood marshall charles hamilton houston and so on and so forth what is very important to understand is that we should not deny that these organizations and mass numbers of black americans participated in a noble struggle struggle against jim crow but we have to understand the political and the geopolitical context of jim crow and why ending jim crow was a ruling class agenda that had been delineated even going back to the 1940s and right during world war ii if you read for example the, the publication that comes out in uh, 1944 by Gunnar murdoch the american dilemma talks about which was financed by american capital talks about well, so
1: by the eugenicists but exactly by the eugenicists. The eugenicists. See what? That's, that's true a, that's the whole thing it was funded by the eugenicists That's and and that is what people have to keep remembering when we start talking about eugenics. How far back did it go? You're talking about the richest people in the country, the Rockefellers, J.P. Morgan, the Harrimans, the Rosenwalls, the the Rosenwalls. Yes, I mean. So when when you when you when you start adding that, the richest. This was a almost a religion for the first forty years in this of the of of the twentieth century in this country. So when you go back into that history. And you start understanding, why she's
0: still alive and well now? But go ahead with your point. The point I want to say is that one of the major driving forces behind the necessity and facilitation of the civil rights movement is that, number one, because of the advanced technology of agricultural technology in the South, sharecropping labor becomes obsolete. Number two, the major, major international image of the United States abroad in the face of competing with the Soviet Union's popularity in the newly decolonized countries from Africa to India and the global South made it public number one agenda for American State Department that it was bad for American capitalism and American foreign policy. And the great book that you could read that talks about this is Mary Dudziak, Cold War Civil Rights explains that the secretary of state issues a amicus curiae brief with the secretary of defense issues this amicus bureau brief in the brown of the board of education case basically telling the court we need you guys to basically uh found on the behalf of the nwcp to end this because this is bad from foreign policy and this is documented now, this does not diminish the role of all these individuals, but what I'm trying to say is that these "quote-unquote" civil rights organizations were working in relationship with the state and the ruling class to fulfill a ruling class agenda that was necessitated by the Cold War politics of this time. And oftentimes, what you hear is that oh, you know, it was Thurgood, good, and it was this and that, and is that these men were being were working as pieces in a chessboard of american geopolitics when even before them there were more radical people like paul robeson like bayard rustin like a philip randolph who were socialists and communists. and all three of those men are members of fraternities and sororities who were directly challenging capitalism who did not well in the, in, the Amer-
1: in the american project pascal as you know everything is a class project of the ruling class there, there is only the ruling class. I mean, um, the little piecemeals that everyone else gets is, um, is a is concession by the ruling class. And even today, I mean, that, that is why we're in the situation that we're in today in both parties, whether it's the Republican Party or the Democratic Party, both of them are controlled by special interests. And the only thing that American gets, only thing that America gets is um, whatever leftovers that ruling class decides to give them to keep that to keep that free market system, that that capitalist system uh, alive and well.
0: By the way, we have a citation that confirms you were right. This family was was uh, sterilized in 1961. So. You got credit for that one. I'm not going to change my position on sterilization being used before World War II, but we'll investigate that. What well, I, I thank you, but I think I think you, Mike. What uh,
1: uh, I, I thank you for conceding that, but uh, I but think you might just waver, I mean, just pass on that particular hey, well, scholarship because you know where I sit in the world in that particular subject. I
0: understand. That. Well, again, we, we we can have that debate at another time. But the larger point, I'm back to the civil rights movement. The larger point I'm trying to say is to not to diminish or to uh deny the role of uh liberal forces black liberals and the civil rights actors and protesters in bringing forth the victories of the civil rights movement but they were even even Baldwin and King were aware that the international perception of what was going on in the world particularly in Af- in africa but a lot of people don't realize that african leaders at the first initial meeting of the organization of african unity pressured john f kennedy to propose civil rights action to protect blacks in the south and kennedy responded and so did rusk who was the state department head of the state department saying that listen we've got to do something and this is bad for our perception in africa so these international phenomenon have a significant role, and my position is that oftentimes we lay too much credit on these elites as being the keys to opening these doors, without looking at the civil rights movement in greater context. But we're coming on to a full hour. We took the full hour. Yeah, this was a great conversation. Again, you got one point, Omega guess one point on the <laughs> Fannie Lou Hamer sterilization. <laughs> we're going to come back and talk about pre whether or not there were sterilizations of Black women before uh the rise of Nazi Germany we'll talk about that another time we we all have the books we can talk off off air and we'll resolve that in a public post that I'll um, share with you I, th- I thank you
1: I, I thank you for having me on the show I, thank I, you for I, having for me listening, for listening to this very important conversation and also to remind people we're not doing this for points we're doing this so that we can free uh people of color black folks all across the all across the African dysphoria because these are very valuable conversations that we need to have uh, to save our families and so that we can grow as a people as as fully uh, and become fully human as God made us. So thank you for having me uh, again, and one for the cues. <laughs> one
0: for the cues. All right, right, folks, come check us out on our next episode tomorrow. Where we'll be doing our political roundup, and we are. If I tell any secrets of the Mao Mao, this oath will kill me. If I am called in the night and refuse to come, this oath will kill me. If I see anyone steal white man's property, I must help him. I must hide what he gives me and say nothing. Or this oath will kill me. The whole system in
1: this country, the economic system, is such that uh, jobs are scarce. Automation is limiting jobs, it's, it's, it's decreasing jobs. And uh, if autom- as automation eliminates the job opportunities, legislation will not create job opportunities. All it will do is bring about friction and hostility between the two races. You, you see, if there will be no uh, progressive revival
0: if black uh, folks are not deeply involved in it. I will obey all orders of the Mao Mao, or this oath will kill me.